0: Greetings and welcome to the Five by, your bi-weekly dose of rapid-fire board game reviews. From the big to the small, this week we have them all. Ruth takes a running stabbing start to the show with Arcadia Quest, Stephanie tells us why bigger isn't always better with Pandemic the Cure, Lindsay gives us a lesson in cuteness with Dungeon Pets, Mason possibly invents new words while reviewing Ubongo, and I take my rightful place at the back of the pack with Brewcrafters the Travel Card Game. But hey, at least I'm bringing beer.
1: Hello 5By listeners, it's Ruth here, and this week I wanted to talk about one of my favorite games. You see, the Free For All Fantasy campaign found in Arcadia Quest is a delight I can't get enough of. Published by Kilmeny cool or Not, the game has a number of expansions, but for the purpose of this review, I'm focusing on the base game and its original campaign. The game is set in the Fantasy Kingdom of Arcadia, recently overrun by the evil Lord Fang and his many minions, who've set up residence in the city and are currently terrorizing the population. Arcadia's infamous hero guilds have heated the call and are attempting to overthrow the villainous vampiric leader and reclaim the city. However, the heroes that make up these guilds aren't the most selfless of warriors, and so while they share a common goal, they're not above attacking each other along the way in order to claim the honor and glory of saving Arcadia for themselves alone. Each player will select three heroes to create their guild and receive a pool of starter equipment that can be divided amongst their heroes as they get ready to retake the capital. To take back Arcadia, they'll have to work through a series of interconnected scenarios, each of which requires completing quests. These quests come in two flavors, scenario-specific PvE story quests, and PvP quests which reward killing members of your opponent's guilds. Players earn gold from completing those quests, from killing monsters, and from finding treasure chests, and when the battle is over, it'll be the gold that they use to purchase better equipment in order to upgrade their guild for the harder scenarios to come. Overall, player turns are pretty simple, as it's the scenario maps, the enemy layouts, and the quest objectives that add variety and complexity to the game, which makes for a fairly easy teach. On a player's turn, they can either activate a hero or rest their guild. When they activate a hero, that hero can move and attack one enemy in whatever order they prefer. To attack, a player simply determines what weapon or item they're using puts a token on it to show it's exhausted, and then determines how many dice they get to roll, and potentially re-roll depending on the equipment. The game does come with custom attack and defense dice, both featuring a crit symbol which will explode. That is, for each crit rolled, a player doesn't just get a successful attack or defense, but they also get to roll another die. This can lead to some pretty epic turns when luck is on a player's side, and they keep getting to add more and more hits to their attack as those crits stack up. Resting your guild simply means unexhausting the equipment, potentially shuffling it around between heroes, and respawning any deceased heroes, since no one stays dead long in Arcadia. In Arcadia Quest, the enemy AI is handled in a reactive manner, rather than having a player take on the role of the monsters. During each player's turn, an opponent will simply complete any required monster actions. Monsters react to the active player's actions in a number of ways. They'll counteract when attacked, they will attack if a player tries to walk by, and they'll get pretty indignant and attack if an adjacent hero chooses to ignore them and instead target another monster that's further away. It's pretty easy to keep track of, and it lets everyone focus on just hacking and slashing their way through the scenario. Players work their way through the scenarios one by one, with the winner of each getting to select from the options for the next stage, as, while a campaign involves a total of six scenarios, there's actually 11 to select from in total, and only the final scenario is mandatory. That final scenario kind of shifts the roles a little, given that it's a boss fight, and the player who kills Lord Fang himself will be immediately declared the overall winner, with their progress during the campaign that preceded, determining if it was a solid victory or just a hollow one. The variety in the scenarios, combined with the unpredictability of your opponents and the varying hero abilities, make replaying the campaign extremely viable. I've actually played the base campaign at least four or five times in its entirety, and it certainly hasn't felt like the same game every time. As I mentioned, Arcadia Quest can also be expanded in a number of different ways. The simplest of these consists of single or double hero packs, offering more recruitment choices for your guilds, while the more complex expansions are large box ones, bringing with them additional rules tweaks, maps, and campaign settings to play through. All of this makes Arcadia Quest a game I can see myself playing for years to come, especially given the relatively quick setup and the ease of maintaining a campaign. Plus, I made the decisions to start painting my collection, and so that'll be keeping me busy for years at the pace I'm going. Playing Arcadia Quest is simply a riot. Players scramble to reach the enemy or objective required for their quest before someone stabs them in the back. Crazy dice rolls cause a weakened opponent to suddenly counter every attack. And it's somewhat hilarious when your supposedly foolproof attack fails, and that tiny goblin you targeted proceeds to wipe you off the face of the board. It's not a game for people who hate randomness or take that but I love it, and so if you're looking for an adorable, dice-chucking dungeon crawl that really doesn't take itself too seriously, then I recommend checking it out. Until next time, I'll be getting my heroes painted and ready for battle, but if you have questions or comments, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com, or on Twitter as Roof. That's an R four O's and an F. Thanks for listening.
2: We live in the age of the reboot. Take something we all love, shake it up a bit, and shove it back out to the masses. Usually this gives us a product that's just different enough to be its own thing, but sometimes falls short of the original enough to be annoying. But sometimes, sometimes something is made better that second time around, and this is exactly how I feel about Pandemic the Cure. Released in 2014, a full six years after the original, Pandemic the Cure is really the only version of Pandemic I want to play regularly. The original's a perfectly fine game, and one that I played all the time when I first got into gaming. But Matt Leacock did something brilliant with Pandemic the Cure. He not only made it simpler, but somehow more enjoyable, even though the constant stress level is still as high. Plus dice. And therein lies what... I think I like most about the experience of playing Pandemic the Cure. Sure, I love chucking dice. I've made that very clear on the show. But that idea of luck and not being able to fully anticipate your next trouble zone feels like a better way to approach this theme. In the original Pandemic, far too often I and my fellow members of the CDC just tried to mitigate what cards we know are coming up next. There's a fair bit of predictability and therefore a predictability in our strategy. But when you're pulling dice blindly and rolling to resolve the beginning of your next crisis, it's more exciting. We're dealing with a global epidemic, folks, and having conversations like, well, we haven't heard much from Cairo, so that must be getting ready to pop off next, seems like an odd approach. With pandemic the cure, it's more like real disease. I mean, your patients in Northern Africa could be doing everything right forever and ever, but some dude sneezes in the wrong direction in Rockville, Illinois, and suddenly it's like The Walking Dead out there in the Midwest. It takes the card counting probability out of the game and introduces a wild unpredictability that I love. In The Cure, not only are you rolling dice to spread disease, but you're also rolling to see how helpful or how careless your character is since your character could be the cause of things going off the rails. Sometimes you get lucky and have every supply and resource at your disposal, and sometimes your ability to travel is temporarily suspended and all you can do is treat where you are and hope you can get things where they need to be later on if you can just survive another day. Or maybe you chance it and Reroll the dice to see if you can do what you need to help out the rest of your team, but doing so could put the world at greater risk when you end up rolling those nasty biohazards. While you technically have choices to make in the original game, Pandemic the Cure's constantly changing options make that decision-making process so much more agonizing, which ultimately makes it more fun. Does this mean that Pandemic the Cure is harder? No, my win loss ratio is about the same with both games. The approach is different. My conversations with my other players are more immediate and I feel are more tactical since I can't begin to anticipate what things will look like by the time it's my turn again. The times we've won have been far more exciting, and the times we've lost have been met with resigned disbelief. I can't really ask more of a co op game. The game scales perfectly from 1 to 5, but honestly, I could never really imagine wanting to play this solo because those interactions with the other players seem such an integral part of what I love about this game. And beyond the way that luck serves this game, the fact that it's dice-based makes it far easier to set up and tear down and we can be playing in less than 90 seconds, something I've never been able to do with the original game. I've been able to teach Pandemic the Cure to relatively inexperienced gamers against something it's not always easy with the original version. My one complaint about Pandemic the Cure, well, at least with the few copies that I've played, see there's this peg that you're supposed to slide into holes to track the infection rate, and I have yet to see one where that peg actually fits. Here's to hoping that that's been fixed over the years. But a single peg isn't going to keep me from enjoying what I feel is a superior version of one of the most popular board games out there. Pandemic the Cure retails for about $35, or you could do what I did and sell your copy of the original game to put towards buying the Cure. You won't miss the original at all. This has been Stephanie Stone Rob for 5 Buy Games, and until next time, stay playful.
3: Hello, it's Lindsay here, In this episode I'm talking a little about Dungeon Pets, designed by Vlada Stavattel, published by Czech Gamers Edition, with artwork by David Cockard. It plays 2-4, and games are typically 90 minutes long. Dungeon Pets was an early board game purchase, and back then I didn't know about the fantastical world of Vlada, or that it was set in the Dungeon Lords universe. In fact, I never heard of Dungeon Lords. Honestly, I went for it because I thought the theme sounded fun, and looked fantastic. And I made that mistake with a couple of early purchases, and I learned a harsh lesson along the way. I very much forgive myself for those mistakes, as it was early days. A few years later, I still enjoyed Dungeon Pets, because thankfully it was a winner for me. I'm not a Vlad expert, I haven't played all of his published games, the ones I have played I've enjoyed on various levels, and I appreciate how his designs are so different from one another, and the pure energy and love that's gone into them. And out of those games I have played, Dungeon Pets is a firm favourite. For those of you not familiar with the game, his is worker placement and hand management with little is thrown in. You're playing as a family of adorable imps who are running a pet selling business. You send your imps out in shopping groups, and the number of imps and coins in a group dictates who takes actions first, second, third, etc. A lovingly detailed bold represents the market. You take actions at the various spaces available. Actions such as buy a cage, which I'm going to refer to as enclosure because I don't like the word cage. And some of those come with a pet toy or food supply already in them. And the red and purple numbers in each corner indicate how much anger and magic an enclosure can take, and I'll come on to that shortly. You buy add-ons for the enclosure to provide further needs, or buy meat or vegetation to feed your pet. You could pick up a fellow imp at the airport to join your business, jump head on the score track by bribing the contest judges, or bring an imp home from hospital when he or she has been injured on the job. And of course you buy pets, which come in these kind of modular egg shapes. You turn the dial on the pet as it ages and the needs and value of the pet increase. The needs are represented with colours. There are five rounds in a two-player game. At the end of each round, you draw a number of coloured cards picked on the egg at that time. You then assign a card to meet each pet's needs, such as food, playtime, etc. Which sounds pretty simple, but the objectives you meet at the end of rounds 2-5, to five, again in a two-player game, these affect how you assign your cards. These objectives are found in the pet competition and the oddball customers were are looking for a certain type of pet eg pets that are playful and poop a lot or pets that are angry and magical and you'll be deducted points for the things that customer doesn't want or the competition doesn't require such as sadness or mutations the theme is really very good there's not much to dislike about running the pet business especially when the pets are chunky pink spiders fireflies with teeth grumpy plant life or rhino unicorn hybrids the characters are really extremely adorable and that's important, because you want to look after your pet, you care about their development, and you want to provide for its needs and sell it to a good home. I seriously feel so bad when a pet ages up at the market and nobody buys it, or when my pet receives a suffering cube. And when we play, we assign the cards to the needs, we always tell a little story. Not every time, but I often do. For example, Cthulhu has a magical outburst which made her a bit sick, which in turn made her sad, so she wanted to entertain Luckily she has a toy in the enclosure already, but she needs an imp to pop in and play a bit of football with her. But it was so rubbish at it, she had a fit of rage, and unfortunately the coach couldn't take it, so the poor imp is now going off in a stretcher. You get the idea. As with other the Vlada games, it has a fairly dense and entertaining rulebook, but despite that, it's pretty straightforward and easy to get your head around. It's win that's difficult, and I very rarely do, despite my best efforts. In a two-player game, you have a neutral imp that takes some of the spaces in the marketplace, and it's always a tough choice deciding where to head first, how to arrange imps to go shopping, and the urgency to do a certain action before your opponent, and what it can mean if you miss out. I actually find the Assignment of the Needs cards to be the most challenging part of the game, and one of the aspects I enjoy the most. The thing may be fluffy, but the gameplay is a tough beast, but not in an incredibly taxing way. As you may know already, I do like me a bit of point salad, and that's really not the case with Dungeon Pets. It's a simple score track affair with a few extra points for coins at the end, then that's it, it's done, and I'm okay with that. With some games like the really long, complex, I put my soul into, I can get a bit meh when there's very little payoff. But with Dungeon Pets, it seems fair enough. I must say, this game can feel a little bit multi solitaire. You are kind of doing your own thing a lot of the time, and that's why I cut the narratives, and make fun of the customers as you may do in a retail job, just to make it a little bit more interactive. And it is just a fun game. I've never thought the I should play the advanced variant of the game though. I'm not sure why, because I love when stuff gets heavy, but I'm happy with my dungeon pets as I've always played it. I almost got an expansion a while back and then didn't. Again, I'm not sure why, as I love the game. I'm just not particularly into expansions as much as my favourite games, but that is definitely a story for another day. Uh, if you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram and YouTube channel, Shiny Hat Meeples, pop my blog, www.shinyhatmeeplesblog.wordpress.com, or follow me on Twitter, capital S, capital H, Bye for now.
4: Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Ubongo. What I want in my life are more abstract real-time strategy puzzles. Competitive puzzling is not a thing I was aware I needed until relatively recently. Ubongo, by Swedish designer Gregors Reichman, was released in 2005 from Cosmos. I've had the app version on my phone for a couple of years now, but I didn't get the opportunity to play the physical game until last year. Ubongo is a real-time, competitive Tetris puzzle, and for some strange reason it's loosely Pan-African themed, but we can come back to that weirdness later. In Ubongo, everyone has their own set of identical Tetris pieces, and each round you get a new puzzle board that you attempt to fit some of those Tetris pieces onto. If you're not familiar with Tetris, unfortunately I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain it to you, just Google it. This is a competitive puzzle game because you're attempting to finish your puzzle board faster than your opponent's and faster than the clock, in order to claim gems which count for points at the end of the game. Bongo is another easy-to-teach, difficult-to-win title, but unlike a lot of my other favorite games, there's not really any emergent gamesmanship between players. This kind of competitive puzzling is strictly skill-based, and the more you play, the better you'll get. If you're looking for player interaction, you will not find it here. You're strictly in your own space doing your own thing. You're just trying to do it faster than the timer and your opponents. Similar to one of my other favorite games, uh, Rüdiger Dorn's Karuba, Ubongo, theoretically, could probably scale up to an almost infinite number of players if you had enough sets to use. The base game comes with a ton of different puzzle boards, and while I suppose it might be possible for you to memorize each board, there's a clever randomizer which increases the possible combination of tiles and puzzles. When you take the puzzle card at the beginning of the round, you roll a die, and the symbol on it dictates which tetroids, yes, that's what I call tetra shapes, don't at me, I don't want to talk about it, The symbol tells you which tetroids to choose from your pile, and then these are the pieces you'll have to fit together to fill in the outline of your puzzle. While there's a significant amount of tension racing against the timer and your opponents, winning in Ubongo isn't really the point, much like Telestration's or Sorry Sliders. The game is fun to play, regardless of who wins. Though part of that may also be that the scoring system is mildly screwy. There's some scoring differences between the new 2015 version and the original 2005 edition, but for me, they're both pretty wonky. I'm not even going to try and explain the overly complex scoring in the first edition, but in the new edition, if you finish first, you get a gem worth three points. If you finish second, you get a gem worth one point. And then at the end of the round, everyone draws a free random gem out of the bag. Which then begs the question, why the hell am I trying to win if we're all just getting random points all the time? It doesn't make any sense to me, except maybe as a catch-up mechanism for playing with mixed groups of adults and children. So if you're a group of adults, there's a simple scoring variant I would suggest to make Obongo more competitive. There are four colors of gems worth between one and four points, respectively. In a four-player game, if you finish your puzzle before the time runs out, you take the highest value available gem. It's simple, it doesn't use any extra components, and I I think it makes the game more fun. There are probably a million other ways you could score it. I'm sure someone has come up with a wagering or Kinesia-style gem market variant that you could apply to it, but that seems like more trouble than it's worth. There's also a whole line of Ubongo games, as well as some different versions, but not all of them are in print or available in the U.S., the new edition of the regular game is readily available from Amazon and several other online game stores for around $30. There's a German-only 5-6 five- player expansion from 2010 that adds some new puzzles, but mm, good luck getting a copy. There are also some other related games in the Ubongo family. Ubongo 3D, Ubongo the Dice Game, Ubongo the Card Game, Star Wars Ubongo, Travel Ubongo, Ubongo Das Duel, which is the two-player head-to-head version, and Ubongo Extreme, which is a really interesting and more difficult sequel that uses some hexagonal tetroid puzzles. Now, of course, I've not played any of these, so I can't offer opinions on them, but they're all available from Amazon.de if you have copious amounts of money to burn. For the base game, the components are about what you'd expect from a Cosmos title at this price point. Take it to ride-sized medium square box, heavy cardboard boards and tetroid pieces, and lots of cool plastic gems in pretty colors. But I have to say that the art in Umbongo is weird. This is a totally abstract game, and while I get that consumers seem to gravitate toward a theme however thin, the Pan-African tribal motif makes zero sense for this game. There isn't even a lame attempt to explain the theme in the rulebook. I read in an old thread on BoardGameGeek that Ubongo apparently means brain in Swahili, so I would assume that one of the older editions makes some kind of attempt to explain the theme. The game is colorful, and the illustration is perfectly pleasant, and some of it is maybe slightly reminiscent of traditional Central African art. As a whole, it feels more like what it really probably is. A European illustrator's idea of what people think looks sort of African. Don't let that prevent you from buying and enjoying the game, of course, but also don't go around telling people that Ubongo is illustrated with traditional African art. So who should buy Ubongo? People who like Tetris. People who like puzzles. People who like racing against a sand timer. People who don't mind playing more for fun than to win. And people who like the frustration of an opponent completing a puzzle one second before they can finish it themselves. I give Ubongo 6 out of 6 quasi-African antelope figures laser-cut into the face of a wooden die. I'm Mason Weaver, you can find me on Twitter, at Mason Hello
0: there, it's Mike, and today I wanted to tell you about Brewcrafters the Travel Card Game. This weekend the topic of playing games at restaurants came up, and Brewcrafters is one of our favorites for this. Brewcrafters the Travel Card Game, by Ben Rossett, published by Dice Hate Me Games, and with art by Chris Kirkman himself. Is a perfect slip into your purse or pocket travel size, takes up less than a square restaurant table's width for your tableau, plays quickly, and requires minimal setup or components. Basically, everything you need for a quick, light waiting for the food to arrive game. Plus, the theme is perfect if you're hitting the local brew pub for some food or a beer. Brewcrafters the Travel Card Game is the much smaller hand management sibling to Brewcrafters' large worker placement game. And while not the first, it came out just before the most recent X the Car Game fad hit. In Brewcrafters, you are collecting ingredients, hiring workers, and installing equipment, all for the goal of making beer and earning reputation to become the city's best brewer. Each player starts with four cards in their hand and selects two cards at the start of their turn, either from the five face-up cards or off the top of the face-down draw pile. The player may then either play a card into the brewery for its permanent effect, Or if they have the right cards, they can play a set of ingredient symbols shown in the upper left and brew some beer. Alternatively, you can just pass, but with minimal planning you'll never have to do that, because the only rule for placing a card into your brewery is that it's not a duplicate of an employee or equipment you already have. Simple enough. But you will want specific cards in your brewery, though, to give you a bigger bang for your buck when making beer. Many cards give you reputation bonuses when brewing certain beers and you certainly want to look for the synergies between those cards to get the plus 3 or 4 for your beers. You can also install equipment that will reduce the hop or malt requirements for certain beers or the ones that allow you to draw malt or hops from the buy row after you make a beer. But the most powerful card in my opinion is the Night Shift card which lets you play a card into your brewery after brewing, which you will do 3 or 4 times a game. It seems anyone who can get that card out early has an advantage. Because while building up is important to bring your brewing costs down, or increase the return on investment for brewing, you must brew while you go. With a starting hand of 4 and a required draw of 2 cards each round, it's guaranteed you'll need to brew in round 4 or you'll have to discard cards to get down to the hand limit of 7 at the end of your turn. How often you brew after that varies, so keep that in mind while making your plans. Look for early synergies in the easier to make beers like ales and porters. As the game progresses, you get more equipment out that saves you resources or gains you resources after brewing. Then you can aim at the higher point beers like the Coffee Stout, Lambic, or Special. But in addition to just needing more ingredients, those beers require harder-to-obtain ingredients such as fruit and coffee. There are only four of each of those in the whole game, and if you just happen to miss it you can substitute any two ingredients for one that you're missing, like I did my first game, the game can move painfully slow. I should really just name this segment too, Mike Always Misses a Rule. The other way the game can slow down is in a three player game, when everyone has built up their brewery. Because the worker and equipment cards are the cards with the ingredient symbols on it as well, as you deplete the deck, you deplete the available ingredients. I've only played three players once, and when over half the 46 card deck was in our breweries, we went back to brewing the easy fewer ingredient early beers as we crept up to the 21 point end of game trigger. But before you trigger the end of the game, there are final two cards you'll want in your brewery. An Employee Manager, who gives you one point at the end of the game for each employee hired. There are six total possible employees. And Brewery Tour, which gives you one point at the end of the game for each piece of equipment installed. There are five possible pieces of equipment. Because there are so few cards, and three to four copies of each type of card, the tension for whether you use a card for your brewery or to brew beer really isn't there until you get close to the end of the game. And about two-thirds of the way through the game, you will inevitably shuffle the discard to refill the draw deck so you'll see those cards that you brood with again. For that reason, hate drafting also is at a minimal, but still occurs. This is a good thing for us, but maybe a bad thing for you. Sure, you kind of want to save the rarer fruit and coffee cards, but that you can use any two matching ingredients to replace them removes that tension as well. So, I like Brewcrafters the Travel Card Game because it's light, portable, quick, fun, and a theme that my wife and I both enjoy, which makes it a perfect night out game for us. If you'd like to discuss Brewcrafters a Travel card game, or why the Reinheitsgebot is actually a really good thing, you can reach me on Twitter at Mike Grizzly. Thanks for listening to
3: the 5 by. If you'd like to follow us, please do head over to Twitter at 5by Games, or like us on Facebook at facebook.comslash 5by Games, or join our BGG guild number 2810. You can listen to the 5by on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or follow all of our links on the 5by 5x at fireside.com.